everyone, and welcome to Ideology. Mick Murray here with Drew Stedman, and I want to thank you for your ongoing listenership and your participation in this podcast. And uh, as we've said in the past, feel free to email us your thoughts, ideas, questions at ideologypc at gmail.com. And today we're going to start a two-week kind of mini-series on biblical interpretation, otherwise known as hermeneutics, and uh, going to give some kind of high-level uh, introductory thoughts today. And next week we're actually going to have a special guest on the podcast who is something of an expert in this field. But without further ado, Drew, why don't you kick us off for today? So from my years of pastoral ministry, this is definitely an important topic and even as we all can affirm the authority of Scripture, there, there, there's still a whole host of questions that come into play. How do we interpret it, understand what it means? And even if we understand what it means, how do we then interpret it to life? At each one of those points, there are a variety of ways of looking at the Bible. And our goal today is just to provide some overviews, even more so than trying to drill in on exactly what you should do about it, just an understanding of at least some of the, the conversation that's out there. Two places I've seen this, you know, I'll use some extreme examples. I remember I was with somebody one time that had been taught that if you can prove anything wrong from their particular interpretation in the Bible, then the whole Christian faith would collapse. And so that's what this person was taught. And so then as they got older, some of the facts that they were taught from Scripture were challenged. And knowing what I know now in theology, I can recognize that uh, many of the things that were challenged, there's plenty of very vibrant, strong Christians who would also agree with the challenge, you know, so it wasn't just an issue of an atheist challenging it. But in this person's background, they were taught that you had to interpret Scripture a certain way, and that's the only way that you could have warrant for faith. And so over time, they started feeling compelled by some of these facts they were learning, and specifically in a few areas in the Old Testament, which then undid their entire faith. Maybe a second uh, side of the spectrum is I've seen other people who have swung the other way, that um, in my perspective, you know, they want to uphold the authority of Scripture as a concept, but then what they start doing is making what I believe to be very intellectually dubious moves to justify what they want to believe from the Scripture. And so what they start doing is calling into question maybe Greek words or using some of the critical methods we'll talk about later to then say, you know, be able to still make the claim that they do what's in the Bible, but I don't know that that's very integrous because I think what's actually happening is they are trying to provide a way to let the Bible say what they want the Bible to say without really looking at what it actually says on its own. Now, so on the one hand, you could have things related to some of the tenets of liberal theology, like denying the bodily resurrection of Jesus. On the other hand, I think in a lot of ethics related to sexuality or things like that um, is probably where I see this the most. But in all these instances, you know, I, I'm representing maybe extremes, but if you could fill the middle in as a, as a continuum or as a spectrum, all of us are trying to grapple with how do we uphold the authority of Scripture and then how do we apply it to our lives. If I had to pick any one person that I would draw from, it's Gordon Fee, and his name gets mentioned a lot. Um, he has a, a book called Reading the Bible for All It's Worth. I've referenced a second of his books called Reading the Bible Book by Book, um, but reading the Bible for all it's worth is just a great overview of um, many of the issues that we're going to talk about today, and he has additional training material as well. Highly encourage people looking at his material if you want to deep dive into some of this. Yeah, this is a huge topic, and I mean, Drew, you've been in pastoral ministry for upwards of 20 years now, uh, as have I, and I know this comes up repeatedly in terms of the authority of Scripture and interpretive approaches and how this impacts our lives uh, functionally on a day-to-day -day basis as followers of Jesus. And so moving on from here, what would be some approaches that people have taken when it comes to understanding this idea of inspiration? 
the whole concept of inspiration is important because if you're Christian, you're saying the Bible is not just a normal book. So there's something extra to this that makes it authoritative. And so what is that something extra? And there's several different views that are out there. There's two I want to talk about in particular. Um, if you were to start maybe on the one extreme, it would be the verbal dictation. And this would be the perspective that the human writers were merely transcribing what God was speaking to them. Um, and so it would actually be pretty similar to an Islamic view of the Quran, is the verbal dictation. I don't know that there's that many um, Christians who have actually believed this as their perspective. And if you were to go way to the other side of the extreme, there would be a perspective that there really isn't any inspiration, that it's a human document, human reflection about God. And so it's still beautiful and wonderful, but it's really no different than any other work of classic literature as we're all grappling with our common humanity and desire to understand the world and the divine. So that's like the the two ends of the spectrum. I don't really want to spend much time there because I don't know that that's going to be as relevant for us. But two that I do think are relevant is first the plenary um, view of inspiration. And what this is teaching is that each word in the original language is the exact word that God wants to use. However, it still allows authorial intent, meaning the human author, style, all of that kind of stuff. So Mick, if you were to write it, your personality is still going to shine through this document, but the Spirit of God is guiding you so that there are no missteps with the words that you use. And so in that sense, the words truly are divine, even as much as they're yours. A second view is, is a dynamic view of inspiration. This would be more classic view out of the Reformation, so like Luther and Calvin and those people. And in this case, the Spirit is directing the writer with respect to the appropriate thoughts. But um, it's a bit more of the, of the author's, you know, their own personalities coming out with this. It's not so much that the Spirit is guiding each individual word. He, he's giving you some latitude on some of those words, but it's still entirely accurate and true and inspired. It's just it's a, a bit more of the divine human partnership in bringing that to bear. Now, there's a whole host of other perspectives that essentially go from there where it's less of God's involvement. Um, you know, and so it might be that you are inspired as a person or you're talking about inspired events, but you're, you know, again, I'm not going to get into as much of that because that's a little further from what I would find to be maybe most of us are our view of scripture. So, so I don't know that we have to nail down exactly where the line is between these, you know, between like a plenary and a dynamic view. But I, I think the point being of taking seriously the Spirit's work in inspiring the text. And, and so in other words, these are events where God acted and God is moving in the life of a community, and so there's a faithful interpretation of those events. But even going further than that, that the Spirit was actually guiding the formation of the words. So it's not just the person recounting what happened, but the Spirit is a part of the recounting of what happened. And so that is what enables this, and as Christians, for us to say that it's authoritative, or even this, this idea of infallibility, um, which means that it is a a or the highest authority in our understanding of faith and practice. So for our neck of the words and the church, we would call Scripture the highest authority. Ultimately, Jesus himself is the highest authority, but Scripture is what we have that bears witness to him that ultimately becomes the source and norm of our faith. For a Catholic, it would be Scripture and tradition together. But in both cases, Scripture is seen as fully authoritative. Um, the question from here is really an issue of how do we interpret it. Before we move on, Drew, where would you fall? when it comes to, I would assume, somewhere in the plenary or dynamic range, but uh, how would you articulate your own viewpoints? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I, I think for me, if I were going to, maybe I'll, I'll define where I would look at it, and then <laughs> somebody can put me in the box they want, is I, I think I would take very seriously the Spirit's active work 
in and through the person. And I think that if you look theologically, God works with people without removing our humanity. And so, you know, you could take that all the way back at the beginning of Genesis, that from the very beginning, God has given humanity a vocation on the earth to tend the garden and to see it distributed across the earth. Um, and, and then that's repeated throughout the Old Testament of humanity's role as a priest in God's order. Um, as we get into the New Testament, I think we see this in its ultimate form where God himself became a person. Like God is so committed to advancing his purposes on the earth through people that God himself became a person so that that could happen. And so I, I look at the whole arc of Scripture and the story of our faith of the Spirit working in and through people is the way that God tends to do things. And so I think we can't take the role of the Spirit out of it, and at the same time, we can't take the role of the humans out of it. And so I think any view that reduces the humanity side of it, and, and I think God probably did allow for the creative expression and the word choice and, and all of that to happen with the human authors, but God guided it in such a way that it can remain authoritative for us. And so ultimately, uh, what that lands for me is that I can fully trust the Scripture and, and uphold it as authoritative and a work of the Holy Spirit while also celebrating the fact that God works through people. And so there's a, an element of that, too, that I think is neat. I mean, you know, any artist or writers out there, that God would use somebody's vocation, he'd use their gift and their skill, but he'd come on it with power in such a way that he'd allow his own words to be distributed using somebody's skill along the way. Like, that just to me is a really cool concept and should inspire all of us that what we do matters and what we do has the potential of being a place, not at the same authority of Scripture, of course, but a way that God would allow himself to be expressed. And it's not because God needs it. No human language could ever contain the truth of God. Um, no human culture could ever contain, contain the truth of God, but it's in his mercy he's allowing himself to be presented through this lens of human writing and culture and language, and that just blows me away. So it doesn't in any way reduce its authority, but to me I think it does provide a cool theology of culture of how it can be redeemed, but it does require absolute dependence on the Holy Spirit. Without it, the whole thing falls apart, and so um, I think we have to have a high view of the Spirit's ability to work in and through um, the authors of Scripture and every other aspect of life. That's great, Drew. And so when we move into the practical considerations around interpreting Scripture, what would be some tools that you would offer? First thing to do is to identify the genre of what you're reading. This would be like A1A. When you're reading Scripture, where I see people get themselves in trouble is they're reading something and they're not as aware of the genre of what they're reading. Now, you all know this, like outside of Scripture, you know, you, you can recognize there is a difference if you are reading a song lyric or if you are singing a song versus if you're reading a history story or if you're reading an email. You, you, we have rules of how we interpret these things. You know, of course, I'm using modern examples, but you see similar elements of this, of what actually was transmitted in Scripture. And then to maybe add a layer of difficulty, sometimes you have one book in the Bible um, might have multiple different genres evident in the book. And so there could be a quotation from a hymn that's alongside of an epistle that's alongside of something else. And typically, as these were being written, each of them were following some kind of conventions. You know, just like today, if I'm going to write poetry, there's conventions I might follow. If I'm going to write a letter, there's conventions I might follow. And the more you learn about that kind of thing, um, you actually see some really cool stuff in the Bible uh, of just ways of, of, you know, maybe what's being presented. And, you know, a great example of this in, in Paul's writings, it's really fascinating. There are standard formulae for how you intro a letter. Um, there's a greeting, there's a, a thanksgiving, there's a closing. There's even an accepted length of letter. And so when you read Paul, you'll find sometimes he follows exactly those parameters then there's times he transgresses it, and that's 
typically going to lead to some pretty cool theological point. Um, so most of Paul's letters are very long um, relative to the letters of his day, which is interesting. Yeah, I think it shows that he was aware, at least somewhat, of what he was doing and writing something that was going to be preserved. But then, you know, in certain one of his letters, like in Galatians, he famously skips over some stuff, you know, and, and that's on purpose. He's trying to make a point. So, you know, understanding the genre is important and being careful to not interpret one according to the rules of another. And I think that's where people tend to, to really struggle. And so reading apocalyptic literature is different than reading an epistle, and you can't read them the same way. Um, a few of the major genres to look at would be historical narrative. And that's large sections of the Old Testament, you know, the Chronicles, the Kings, Samuel, those types of books. There's really not an equivalent in the New Testament except for maybe Acts, and our, our guest next week, can he can weigh in on that one of where it exactly fits. Poetry and Psalms, and that's, again, quite a bit of that in the Old Testament. Wisdom literature, then there's gospel as its own genre, and I, I think one of the best ways for understanding gospel is somebody told me one time, it'd be the equivalent of getting four painters to paint the same subject. And so they all would give an accurate representation of that person, but they're going to do it through a different lens. And you think, you know, if, of who we claim Jesus to be, it sure makes sense that the record of his life would be preserved in that way to ensure that we have the most well-rounded view. And then epistle, uh, and an epistle is a letter. And, you know, as I said a minute ago, it follows conventions and norms. I, I, this one always, I just think is really funny to me. It's like, I, I think of the Apostle Paul and I'm like, man, if you had told that guy that one of his greatest legacy would be the letters he wrote in conflict, like, how would he feel about that? You know, I've had to write letters before in sticky situations, and it would, I don't know that I'd be too happy if my life's legacy was those being preserved as a source of theology, you know, but Paul never wrote a systematic theology. All of his letters were an occasion of something else. I mean, even Romans was a giant fundraising letter, if you actually see the point of it. Um, he's trying to secure support for going to Spain. And so epistle is its own category, but it's letters in a context. But it actually, that to me opens up some really cool doors of not just kind of a theology and abstract, but a lived theology in the life of the church. And then lastly is this, this um, concept of apocalyptic literature. So the book of Revelation and Daniel. And I think this one is where there can be the most confusion. Um, I had it explained to me once, it'd be like the equivalent of a political cartoon, and so there's really vivid imagery, but just if we were to talk about donkeys and elephants making war against each other, you know, if, if somebody came along and read it 2,000 years later, they'd be so confused, but the imagery makes a ton of sense, and a great trick to reading Revelation is to read Daniel first, uh, and you'll see some of that imagery and how it's developed and how it's articulated in Revelation. Oops, and I just realized I skipped the one of the biggest ones, and that's prophetic literature. So that makes up a large portion of the Old Testament. Additionally, there's other type of subgenre. So I think a real prominent example of this would be parables um, in the Gospels or, or things of that nature that, that also could be understood as a genre. Yeah, and I'll note too on the prophetic literature, I think prophetic literature is often misunderstood as being primarily about foretelling the future. And though that is certainly part of the prophetic genre, uh, the vast majority of prophetic literature is actually calling the nation of Israel and, and by extension the people of God back to faithfulness to Yahweh. And so as you read the prophets, know that their primary job was not to foretell the future. Their primary job was to act as uh, these mouthpieces for God, calling the, the wayward nation of Israel, the wayward nation of Judah back into uh, faithful fellowship with God, covenantal relationship with God. Uh, as a helpful uh, frame framework for understanding the prophets, and I would say by extension, you know, one of the main reasons for understanding genre is to understand authorial intent. So, what was the author?
author intending to say. It's so tempting to superimpose our modern-day understanding of context and culture onto the scriptures, but th- these are ancient documents woven into one meta-document in the Bible, and we're trying to mine out what was the author intending to say? What was the message uh, they were trying to convey? And that's what we look uh, look for when, he, when we get to application. Uh, we're trying to apply our lives to the original intent in, in terms of understanding the Word of God uh, as it relates to the author's intent. And, and let me just also say by extension before we move on, Drew, that you know this intersects with our podcast in a lot of different ways when we talk about the ideas that are shaping us, the formative process for the, the follower of Jesus or for anybody. The transformation through the renewal of the mind is a huge piece of that, and we want to mine out the depths of the richness of Scripture as followers of Jesus to lay down that track in our minds when it comes to the nature of God, the nature of man, what it means to live a good life, and so on. And so interpreting Scripture rightly or faithfully is a huge component to that journey. So moving on from there, Drew, why don't you go a little further in depth into the the types of interpretation that we'll encounter. out two words that uh, different people, you know, you probably hear uh, from time to time, but just to explain them. The first is exegesis, and that is a reading of the text where you're trying to figure out what does the text say, um, what does this mean? Um, The second is hermeneutics, and that is you are applying the text. And so both of those are important when it comes to understanding Scripture. So as we move into different types of hermeneutics or different ways of applying the Scripture, the first is the historical grammatical. And this is what you just said, Mick. It's seeking to understand the author's intention. So you're reading the text, and you're taking it, assuming that what the author intended is in some way authoritative, and you're trying to figure out what the author intended, and then that's therefore what we would apply. So when I'm, so when I'm reading something, and you know we're getting into ethical discussion or something or whatever the case may be, I want to get down to what was the author's intention in this, and you know where where this would matter is you might have sometimes a way that we might read something and. It's just in the common church lexicon, but when you actually get in there a bit more, you realize that's not really what the author was intending through this. So we call it into question, but if we can figure out what the author did intend, then it becomes authoritative and something that we apply in the life of the church. The second prominent method, and this would in the academy for sure be the one that takes the lead, is historical critical. And this is seeking to understand not just the author's intention, but all the historical circumstances surrounding the text. And within this, you could have views that tend to be more theologically conservative and also views that are more theologically liberal. And we're going to deep dive into this next week in maybe different ways, um, different proposals for interpreting Scripture that aren't stuck in the historic critical method. I, I will say, though, the word critical sounds negative, right? Like we associate critical and negative. Another word you can throw in here is analysis, because that's probably a bit more accurate to what's being described. And so it's not just criticizing, but it's analyzing and looking at it. And I'll say in my own study of Scripture, I will use some of these tools, but I'm always trying to be very careful of starting with the inspiration and the authority of Scripture. So I use these tools insofar as they help me to understand what I believe was intended and what was written, but not to call into question what God was intending to transmit. And that's just for me, that's my faith commitment as I approach the text, um, not wanting to put myself where the Bible becomes an object that I'm evaluating, but instead it's a living document that's the testimony of God. And I think that's an important thing to dive into, and, and you'll see pretty fast how these can be helpful or potentially challenging. So I'll, I'll just go through a few of them. There's more than this, 
Form criticism is the first one, and this asks the question, how was this text used, and what was its intention? So like uh, the Psalms would be the classic example of this, of of understanding the purpose of the psalm. You know, was this for a specific festival, for a specific occasion? Was this, when, when was this used in liturgy? All that type of thing can then help you to interpret what's actually being said and um, can shed some cool light on some things. You know, I think the Halal Psalm, Psalm 112 through 118, um, were used often in festivals. And so when you understand that, and then you see a lot of the narrative in the Gospels involves the festivals, and then it's incorporating these psalms, it ties together a bit more the significance of those psalms. That wasn't just cherry-picking a verse, but these were the prominent things, typically Psalms 118 in particular, that were read at these holy moments in the life of Israel. And so it makes a lot of sense then why the Gospel writers would draw from that. So, you know, you can, you can draw some insights there that are pretty powerful. Second is source criticism, and this is reviewing the manuscript traditions of how we got the text of the Bible as we have it today, um, and looking at it and evaluating it. You know, you, you do have the situation where there are manuscripts that'll have different things, and that could be everything from an error that a scribe made to maybe a very early on, um, somebody came along and didn't like the way something read, and so they added their own thing to it. And, you know, and so there's this whole school of thought of how do we construct the best possible manuscripts and even looking at the traditions behind them. Third is redaction criticism, and this is probably the one I'm the most skeptical of. And this is looking at how a text was edited over time until we got the canonical version. You probably see this more in the Old Testament just because of the oral history of it, you know, where you had things, and, and who knows how far back um, some of these emerged, where it was, it was transmitted orally, but then it was eventually written down by scribes, potentially centuries later after a lot of the text was in place. And so they're looking at how those scribes may or may not have redacted the stories that were given to them. Yeah, I have a lot of, I have a lot of skepticism around this one um, because I think this is a good example of you can make something say what you want it to, but um, it is out there. Fourth is rhetorical criticism. Um, this is looking at the final product, and so this would be the example I said earlier of Paul's letters and seeing how they do and do not comport with the examples of the time. Narrative criticism, and this is something that we do a lot, looking at the text as a narrative overall and trying to figure out, you know, how does this, how does this whole story fit together? This would be another example, I, I think, of where it can also go too far if you're not careful, because you can turn it into a story and start stripping the Bible of its truth content, just like you can make the Bible a proposition of truths and lose its story. We've got to be careful there, and I have a, a solution I'll propose here at the end of something that we can look at. And then the final one I'll mention is reader response criticism, and that's asking the question of what was this text designed to provoke in the reader? Again, you can easily take this one too far. But some good examples are the ending of Acts or the ending of Mark, especially if you accept the earlier ending of Mark, where these end very abruptly, but the reader response critical view of this would say that that was designed on purpose to provoke something in the readers to compel them to some sort of action. And so it can help sometimes maybe understand some of these things that, that years later seem awkward or weird actually had a very intentional purpose because they were going after some kind of act activation in the heart of the person that was reading it. Okay, so that's all under this banner of the historical critical method, and it breaks down into all kinds of different sub-disciplines. You could easily get your PhD on some very small one of these points, and, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a whole thing. Um, but if we could take a step back, you know, you have the historical grammatical and the historical critical. All of them are essentially getting to the point of what was the author intending. However, that's not the only way of looking at Scripture. Um, a very prominent third interpretive view was allegorical. 
and this was something that was especially in the early days of the church, this was looking at how was God speaking through the text in a way that maybe the original author didn't even foresee. A classic example of this one would be the story of Noah's Ark as a parallel to the church. Obviously, the author of Genesis was not anticipating the future church and when this was being written, you know, um, but it does serve as a really powerful example and metaphor for what the church is called to be. And I think this is taking a step back and looking at the Spirit's hand guiding history in different events um, or different stories that were passed down along the way where the person didn't realize what was happening, but God knew the whole time. I think you could put prophecy in a similar category where a person was writing something, you know, and a lot of the critical methodology, you know, you're going to reject this, right? Because the concept of having special insight into the purposes of God doesn't fit the, the box of, of reviewing ancient literature. But if you do believe the Spirit is acting, I think you have to leave that door open as a possibility as well. Um, and it certainly was something that was prominent pretty early on in the life of the church. There are other hermeneutics out there, and we'll get into some next week as well. Um, but these are a few that, that stand probably the most prominent. And you could expand out this idea of authorial intent, just like you were, you were just saying, Drew, with the allegorical approach to what was the Holy Spirit's intention in the inspiration of these scriptures as maybe the highest form of authorial intent, uh, and then using that kind of sub-interpretive framework of what was the human authorial intent within the context of, of when it was written. And I, what I hear you saying, Drew, is these aren't necessarily mutually exclusive, but these are various frameworks that you can use, kind of overlapping and applying these as tools uh, with varying degrees of, effect, of effectiveness. You talked about you know, some methodologies that you'd be more skeptical of, um, but is, is that true? And then uh, so that's the first question. And then where would you go from here? What are some, I could anticipate people listening. I'm listening and I, you know, I study the scriptures and teach for a living and, you know, this can be a lot to swallow. So for, you know, the average person, and I'll let myself in there for the average person, what would be some, maybe some frameworks that you would offer some practical steps that people can take to move forward? Yeah, let me start by answering the second question first, uh, and then we can move our way down of how do you use tools in a healthy way. So I'm going to give three principles that I think are important for all of us, and hopefully will rather than feeling the need to wrap your head around all of this, which I don't think most of us do to get the truth of God's Word, what are some principles that we can, that we can stand upon? My first principle is that Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and as a result, it is authoritative in the life of the, the church. It's historically reliable, and it points to Jesus Christ as the perfect revelation of God. And this is the comparison I've used in the past between Islam and Christianity, where in Islam, the difference between the Quran and the Bible is similar to the difference between Jesus and Muhammad. And so in Islam, the Quran is the perfect revelation of God. That's why it cannot be translated outside of Fusha Arabic and still considered valid. You can make a translation, but they would view that more as like we might view the Message Bible. You know, it's more of an interpretation because these are the actual words transmitted of God and then you have Muhammad, who is the messenger and obviously holds a very high place as God's prophet, but he is not at the same level of the words of God. In Christianity, we flipped that. Jesus is the perfect revelation of God. He is the one that is the exact representation of God. And our scripture is the authoritative witness to that, but the two are, are in a different spot. So I think we, if we can keep that clear, it helps us. But then what we have to do is recognize that this is a spirit-inspired work. This is not just the best of the Judeo-Christian traditions, reflections upon the divine, which I think is where some people try to go with it. And um, my, my premise overall is that God acted and acts in history, and so the transcendent living God 
descends into the earth by the Son and by the Spirit to act and reveal himself to us. And part of what God does is he preserves a witness of what he has done for the sake of that being extended generationally. And so, in other words, God is continuing to act to reveal himself, and how God does does this always aligns with it, what has already been revealed. And, and I would add to that, including the preservation of his words. Um, there's a, one of my mentors theologically is um, the late Billy Abraham, and he had a concept of canonical theism, where essentially he's looking at this and he's taking scripture, but he's also going to go a bit further and just say, looking at the traditions of the church and just kind of this, this larger grouping, the councils, the creeds, and, and saying um, what, these, what we're seeing here is this is the revelation of God acting in history, and this is how God has done it, and this is what's been preserved in the life of the church, and therefore is something we can stand on. And his book, Crossing the Threshold of Divine Revelation, uh, I think is a good one. However, what I also added in my definition that I think is important is historically reliable. And so, you know, this is, gets a little difficult because sometimes in reading scripture, it's not always clear what is a parable and what is an actual event, what is hyperbole uh, intended by the author, you know, and I, I might say that it's a million degrees outside. I'm not actually telling you that I, I believe the temperature on the thermometer would read one million. Instead, I'm using hyperbole to describe a Texas summer or a Texas spring or a Texas fall, you know, pick, pick whatever season besides winter, uh, you know, but it's hyperbole. You're not, you're not questioning it. You're not receiving that as a scientific statement. And that's harder sometimes when you're going back and reading an ancient text. So I'm acknowledging some difficulty there at times. At the same time, what I am saying is that I think the Bible is historically reliable. And so where the authors intended it to be historically reliable, I'm going to also make the claim that it's historically reliable. And I think that is obviously critically important in the witness of the early church, describing the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the events of Israel's history, uh, things of that nature, I think, become critical for our faith because so much of the theological reflection is in response to the divine action. And I think if we, if we make the divine action, uh, you know, some type of up-in-the-air up mythology, I think the whole Christian faith loses its foundation. And so even though I acknowledge that sometimes in Scripture it's not always clear what's intended to be taken as a literal event, I am saying that it is a historically reliable witness of what God has done in history, and I think that's incredibly important. My second principle is that Scripture firstly means what the author intended it to mean. And for me, that's based on the theological principle I said earlier of God acting through people. And so I think, you know, where you read it and you can see, and this is what makes Bible study can be so rich, especially if you've, you know, if you feel kind of dry in your study of Scripture, maybe you've read it for a long time, but you want to go a little bit deeper. This is a great way to do that, of, of just start diving in more. You can find a commentary or find a resource. Um, and we've pointed out several before, but you start seeing a bit more like, and it's like any kind of art, you know, when you can start to see what the artist or the author is intending to do, it just opens up whole new vistas. And so I think that's a really cool thing. And I think it's God is allowing his word to be transmitted in that way. And it's as the author intended. And I think, you know, maybe the flip side of that is where somebody is going to make, especially if they're going to be definitive on doctrine, and it's going to be pretty obvious not what was intended in that passage. That's where I'm always going to hold that in question. Where the author is clear, that's where I'm going to stand with the authority of Scripture. And, you know, once again, this, there is going to be disputed territory here. As I've mentioned before, this is where I also look at the interpretive tradition of the church. And so where there's something that may seem unclear to me, but if the church has consistently interpreted it a certain way, and especially if that spans the various denominations we talked about last time, then I'm gonna, that's where I'm going to stand the most strong. You know, if Scripture's clear, author intention is clear, the tradition is clear, then I think that's what we take to the bank. 
If, on the other hand, you see something where the interpretation isn't quite clear on what the author intended, it's disputed, if the interpretive history is disputed, we, we probably need to be a bit more careful there. If we are referencing a past podcast, I think the nature of election is a good example of that. To, to what extent is it individual versus communal, and how much of that is Paul referencing the history of Israel as the elect people of God versus is he talking about individual election? Um, you can make a case on either side, um, but that's a good example of, of trying to dig into what is the author's intention there. Um, one thing I will say on this, um, because I think this is such a big deal in, in modern times, one area where I think Scripture is very clear is ethics. Um, I, I think that's one, especially in the New Testament, you can get a handle on that really fast. And that would include things today that are very countercultural related to human sexuality and things like that. And so, you know, just understanding, can we wrap our head around author intention and, and then really making that authoritative? I will leave, though, a disclaimer there if I also think we need to have room for prophetic and allegorical interpretations, just with caution. So, you know, if I am going to build something off of that, and let's say I am reading Scripture, and I, I feel like God's speaking to me through the text, or He's opening up something to me through the text, but if I'm using some of this other methodology, it's pretty clear this is not what the author intended, I think that is a valid interpretation of Scripture. I just wouldn't make doctrine on it. I would instead use that as uh, maybe God highlighting something in the Word to, to speak a prophetic word to me. Um, I would not claim that as the interpretation or say that this is what's intended in a doctrinal statement, but I do think there is validity to that as a type of reading, just as long as we're aware of where it fits in the overall scheme of things. Last principle that I would give is that none of this matters apart from a submitted heart to Jesus. You know, I was actually just reading my kids this morning talking about Jesus and his parables, where Jesus says they have eyes but without perceiving, ears without hearing. And, uh, you know, in other words, there are truths of God that we will not get only using our cognition. You could be the smartest person in the room. You can master the original text. You can do all that kind of stuff. And yet, if you show up and you're reading of Scripture and you are placing yourself on equal authority or authority over the Scripture, then you will not be able to interpret it properly. Instead, it's when you are submitted to Jesus, when your life is his, when you, and I love what our pastor does here in Waco, he'll visually represent this by putting the Bible on top of his head and saying, it evaluates me, I don't evaluate it. And I think that at the end of the day, you know, take everything else I've said today, and I would much rather be somebody who's relatively uneducated and new to scripture, but have a heart posture of submission to Jesus. You will get more out of the Bible if you are that person than somebody who views this as something else where you sit in judgment over it, or even sit in judgment of all the other people who you think got it wrong. Um, I think we do want to be students of the Word, and there's a different grace given to different people of exactly what that means. We do want to be students of the Word. At the same time, we have to recognize that principally our call is a call to discipleship. We are taking up our cross and following Jesus. We are acknowledging Him as our Lord and King. And it's in that place then that we're able to receive his word. And that is him as a person and the gift of the Holy Spirit, but it's also his written word. And I've, I've found this to be true, you know, and I, I think here this is where sometimes too much study can be dangerous because you fall into the sin of pride if you are not careful. And you fall into the sin of thinking that you're in control when you're not. And that's a very dangerous place to be. And then you can back that up with a lot of really great human knowledge. And it is amazing how much the Bible has been and can be twisted. And at one level, the more you know, the more you're able to twist it. 
And so I, I find the only solution to this is a heart of submission, and I do not think there is another way around it. And because I do believe that the Holy Spirit is active, I think those whose hearts are submitted, the Holy Spirit's going to guide into truth. And if we embrace the, the road of humility, then we're able to allow the Holy Spirit to correct us, even through the mouths of other believers, other churches, other denominations, the, the various theologians throughout history. We're open to their word to us as well, because our heart is submitted to Jesus and not wanting to do our own thing and allowing Scripture to justify it based on our twisting of God's words. So those three principles, I think, help me a lot, and that then allows me to use some of these tools. And so if I can get those three things right, then I can use some of these tools and draw some really cool things from the text, but it's never as a replacement for submission to Jesus and really standing on the authority of His Word and allowing His Word to speak to me first before I start trying to interpret it or apply it, but really taking the time to say, what does God intend to be said to this? and being diligent and being a student of his word in that way. Great stuff, Drew, as always. And um, I hope that this content has been digestible and that you can pull a handful of things out for your own study of Scripture. And again, this is just part one of a two-week mini-series on biblical interpretation. Uh, We're going to actually go a little deeper next week with a a guest, like we mentioned. We'll introduce him at the beginning of the show next week. So feel free to tune back in for more on this topic uh, next week on Ideology.